You're interrupting my sport ball. <laughs> well, you think having the show start a little bit earlier than normal is bad enough for you. Uh, my daughter says, Daddy, why are you making a martini at four in the <laughs> afternoon? Yeah. <laughs> I said, well, I, uh, two things. One, it's a tradition on the show. We start the show with uh, a beverage. And, and two, the guest will be speaking to technically it's well into happy hour in London, England. Oh, it's listen. They are, are six pints deep by this time. <laughs> I, I'm saving. I'm saving my uh, my drink for after supper. I have a bottle of kombucha. What on um, earth is that? It is a fermented raw beverage. This is uh, ginger ale. It's certainly not nearly as exciting as your martini. But I planned it in front of the TV tonight from about seven o'clock on, and I have a chill bottle of vodka uh, in the freezer, and and I just don't. I don't want to start too early. Yesterday I went, and we will talk about this uh, off the air a little later on, but I had an opportunity to talk to some people who run another website. Oh, yeah. And they were very, they were trying to impress me yesterday. So we had a private lunch in a wine cellar at a restaurant in downtown Toronto. And four of us uh, went through three bottles of wine and half a bottle of whiskey in three and a half hours. Did you blow the 2018 Geeks and Beats budget just with no, that meeting? No, they were, were were recording me and us. So, uh, oh, I should have told you about this. <laughs> I was I, I, I was representing. I was representing. But, oh, God, yeah. So <laughs> I got home yesterday. They actually, they were smart. They sent me an Uber to pick me up, and then they sent an Uber to take me home. And, and I when I came so. home, uh, I said, honey... I have to lie down. <laughs> and it was, it was 10 after 4 in the afternoon. Yeah, well, that'll be me by the end of the episode. <laughs> Here we go. From the headquarters of Geeks and Beats magazine, simulcast on shortwave radio and Citizens Van 14, this is the world's most popular podcast with Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth, featuring musical guest Sting. The future is now. Blade Runner 2049 may not be the last word in Ridley Scott's science fiction future. As he talks about a third film in the franchise, we talk to the man who made the sequel's dystopian future come alive. Peter Essany of Territory Studios joins us direct from London. Plus, why the score couldn't compete with the original, and why the business of making music videos today has changed so dramatically since MTV was killed by YouTube. And now, Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth. So while we were at the big show at the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas, we got more news that hit the tape. Ridley Scott has plans for another Blade Runner sequel. I don't know how I feel about that. I really tried to make it through the second Blade Runner and... Did you do it all with one bladder? No, absolutely. No, no one can. There's just no way. I'm, you know, I'm off Ridley Scott because he's really ruined the Alien franchise for me. So... I don't know. This is a different different thing. Maybe. Maybe I'll be interested. DigitalSpy.com has an exclusive saying, quote, I've got another one ready to evolve. And so apparently Blade Runner 2049 is not the end of the franchise. You and I talked on a recent episode about how the music of Blade Runner 2049 couldn't hold a candle to the original Vangelis, largely because... 
Vangelis had never done anything like that before. Nobody had done anything like that before. And now everything that we learned in the original Blade Runner has been done to death in the music industry. Yeah, it has. Uh, when, when, when Vangelis did that soundtrack, synthesizers, MIDI controllers, and everything else that he used to put that soundtrack together were so new. And Vangelis, along with Giorgio Moroder and Kraftwerk and a few other people, were on the leading edge of using this new technology, which was hideously complicated and awfully, awfully expensive. So it was beyond the reach of most musicians. But uh, as the Chariots of Fire soundtrack came out, as the um, which is another Vangelis thing, as uh, his Friends of Mr. Cairo album came out, as uh, the Blade Runner soundtrack came out, um, these new devices kept getting more and more powerful and much more cheaper. Uh, so the people who were finally able to afford them would look to, like the Blade Runner soundtrack, for example, and go, I can do that. I would like to be able to make music like that. And then Brian Eno was coming out with his NBA music at around the same time. So it was, uh, it was it's, it's one of those moments where Vangelis came out um, when so many other things were happening, he just happened to be in the right place at the right time. So when they came up with Blade Runner 2049, visually as well, they had to draw on the past, but at the same time, bring something new to the table as well. And while some would say that the, the reboot going almost three hours in uh, didn't hold a candle to the original, the, the visuals were absolutely remarkable. And a lot of that had to do with a man named Peter Essany. He joined Territory Studios in 2012. He's worked on films like Guardian of the Galaxy. He's worked on such films as Guardians of the Galaxy, The Martian, and then in 2016 became the lead creative at Territory and developed the visual style that you know as Blade Runner 2049. He joins us now from London, England. Good to have you with us. Hello, guys. How are you? Well, I'm about a martini into this conversation. Alan's holding off, but it is traditional that we uh, have a, a little tipple over the course of the show. And considering it is much later where you are, it had been suggested that you might be six pints in by now. Yeah, you know, there's this there's this thing in, uh, you know, around me called dry January, where people don't try to drink, and I, I try to stick to that. So Heresy. Uh, Heresy. I'm having a nice bottle of non-alcoholic beer. Okay, so be <laughs> it. Uh, now, let's talk about the work that you did on, on 2049 first, because, mm -hmm. as I say, you had to follow up on an original, but you also yeah. had to advance the technology without simply copying it. How did you do it? Well, um, when we started to work on it, the brief was very, very simple. Uh, actually, what we got from Denny was don't do anything like the original. Obviously, I'm a big fan of the original film. And um, as much as, you know, technology was a was a big part of the first film, screen graphics and computer graphics were not as advanced back in the day. So it was fairly easy to stay away from, from what was done on the first one. Plus, there was this very big cataclysmic thing that happened between the first one and the second one. So um, it gave us a chance to sort of like start in a clean slate and, and start the thinking process again. That, that cataclysmic thing you're talking about is that there had been the big hack attack by the replicants, which wiped out all the computer technology and people essentially had to start over. So that gave you a clean slate? Yes. Um, so there was this massive EMP uh, thing that went off and, and, and basically fried all the digital technology. So all the computer databases, all the hard drives, everything, everything that was stored digitally was lost. And um, that gave us a, a, an opportunity to start to explore different ways how technology could work in a world 
where you don't rely on the traditional digital technology that we have right now. So there are no, um, there's a not, not, not a direct connection uh, between what we have right now or what we assume, um, you know, the original Blade Runner films had or film had and, um, and the new one. So that gave us, yeah, a, a really great opportunity to explore certain things like how um, technology could work based on biological stuff. So, you know, we started all these lovely exploratory process with, um, you know, all sorts of bacteria that emits light and all sorts of crazy stuff. Yeah, um, we can talk about it. I love talking well, about it, that. It, it offered you an opportunity to wipe out what would have perhaps been old-looking technology from the first movie because you think about the first Alien movie or you think about 2001. And, I mean, those are visually stunning films. However, when you start looking at things like computer displays and some of the, the technology that they're using in the spacecraft, I mean, you know, you're looking at something from 1968 or you're looking at something from 1979. With what you did with Blade Runner is like, okay, we're, you know, it's not going to be like Michael Douglas standing on the beach in Wall Street, in the original Wall Street, with that giant cell phone in his hand. <laughs> yeah, um, I think I think I really loved how this sort of like very hard task to to bridge these very different eras, sort of like um, were just just very easily solved. This riddle was solved with this. All right, guys, you know, there's a clean slate, and just do whatever you want to do. Um, I, I really loved that. That that was that was a big moment for us because. Um, you know, there's there's always a bit of hesitation when you have to base your work on something that was done previously by by geniuses back in the, you know, back in the time. Like when we worked on Prometheus, uh, obviously we watched Alien and Aliens and all the all the um, you know previous examples of of technology in that world, and we had to build something upon upon that, something newer on top of it. But on Blade Runner, it was like yes, just forget about what happened in the past and, and come up with something new. At the same time, when you look at the computer screens in any given movie, you know, I, I think uh, the, the displays are designed to advance a story, but the geeks in us are screaming at the screen saying, oh, it would never look like that. How do you walk that fine line between looking at, putting something on a computer screen in the near future that looks futuristic without leading to geeks like me taking shots on the internet. Mm. Um, I think what we try to do usually when, when we work on, on, on these sort of films is uh, we try to, first of all, try to create something that's plausible, something that's somewhat um, based on, on, on real factors. On the other hand, the major thing that we do with these screens is, is as you said, we help uh, the director to tell her or his story. And and that's the major factor in, in, in what happens on those screens. I mean, like, um, I'm going to be completely honest. On, on really good films, the computer screens are just there to 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 embellish the story to to help to pad the world out whilst on probably less um well written films um they use it as a as a plot device someone just looks on a screen and then there's a there's a bar and then at the end of the bar it says you just transferred five million dollars so that's the kind of stuff that we try to get away from we always try to uh design these screens to help Tell the story, the, you know, get the story points through 
but also sort of like just let's create some plausible technology maybe i don't know i mean like some of the stuff that we do is is fairly um you know pretty much based on real world technology so we do for, for some reason we did quite a lot of submarine films last year and um, those screens uh, were mostly based on real world technology as much as we <laughs> can get close to submarine technology but you know, they were they were not super super um, science fiction based stuff they were more like rudimental military stuff sometimes when we do airplanes and helicopters they're obviously based on like real world stuff but spaceships that's that's where it gets a little bit interesting and you know the Martian was a sort of like a, a great crossover between something that's plausible and something that looks good on a screen my wife and I actually sit she's a big science fiction fan too and we, we sit watching these movies and we kind of elbow each other throughout the film going yeah it would never look like that in the 22nd century or or why do screens still have green character pre- readouts or why do all the all the, all the text that comes across the screen is all in block letters and it makes this sound whenever all the everything is being when 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 the text is being rendered on the screen i'm glad i'm glad that that you and i are much on the same, the same page with this one. Not that it's going to make that much difference, but I'm, I'm glad there's at least somebody who is is into this sort of set design and uh, that understands that nerds like me and Michael just cringe when we see something like that, especially if it's something that's set in the, the, the near to far future. Well, in a related note, though, you, for example, have this scene where Kay, the, the replicant whose job it is to hunt other replicants, is looking through a genome database, and it was interestingly described as as a Rolodex, as, as the metaphor. My first thought was, oh, it would never be like that in the year 2049, but it comes full circle back to your point about the EMP. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like, you know, that was the major... Uh, that was a, the single most important uh, design, um, sort of like the, the factor that influenced the design the most. Because obviously, if it's a digital database, you just put in some words and search for it. But the idea was, especially with that um, DNA database stuff, that somewhere they have this this sort of like oh, we imagined it as some sort of uh, microfiche type uh, thing that's in the basement that's that's you know buried somewhere in the basement and and someone uh, because it's not humanly readable that was the whole plot point that it's only a replicant who can sort of like read through all those base pairs and and sort of like can say that oh you know this looks very similar to that let's just compare these two and the idea was that he brings up this very analog almost like mechanical sort of like uh, type stuff and then he he sort of like starts to scroll through that request dna records children born 6 10 21 looking for anomalies You have the sat crystal backup. Okay. Run it raw. That goes back to the the um, <clears throat> whole EMP stuff, and actually, probably from the next week, uh, maybe after that, when the DVD is out and the Blu-ray is out, and we are allowed to show a little bit more behind-the-scenes stuff. I'm, I'm probably going to put a few things on um, 
on, on my website where you know I, I detail the, the design process uh, behind that um, you know database or database as they called it and and very similar stuff so it was it was it was almost mechanical and and i really loved that because you don't see that in science fiction everything is digital or holographic and that kind of stuff so it was it was a very unique sort of like proposal Now, let's just, for example, go back to 2001, Space Oddity, 1968, Stanley Kubrick, and we have Kier DeLay uh, in watching what looks like an iPad in, in Discovery. Mm-hmm. And we yeah. now look back on, on that as being very prescient, you know, prior art for, for, for tablet computers, for, for, for phablets. Have you ever done anything in any of your films that has come true like that? Uh, well, I really hope that the Blade Runner technology will not. Will not well, come yeah, to let's hope that that one. Yeah. Let's, let's, that <laughs> yeah, let's one get out. back to them in fifty years. Yeah. Um, that being said, with that being said, I mean, like some of the stuff that we that we came up with, I think that's quite. I'm not, you know, it's it's a very interesting sort of like uh, technology. I'll I, I tell you one story. One of the stuff that we investigated quite early on was based on bioluminescence. You know, that lovely blue thing uh, that happens sometimes on beaches and and you know the sort of like all sorts of small animals in the ocean that get churned up by by uh, um, sort of like ships and and they emit some sort of a very faint blue light and we started to entertain the idea what if there's some sort of bacteria that emits blue light and if you if you sort of like trigger some sort of uh, a very small electric shock and they start to emit blue light then what if you um come up with a very different type of bacteria that uh, emits red light with the same sort of electric shock and then you know the, the green one is the third one and then you suddenly have an rgb system that's created by bacteria and, and if you can sort of like contain that into a, a display or, or put it into a display or, or behind some glass or whatever you have a very primitive rgb display system and i don't know i mean like you know i, I don't think it's it's biologically possible but you know if someone uh, genetically engineers some sort of bacteria that loves being shocked by very low voltage and you know as a as a as a gift emits blue light i mean like you know that's not that far from what's possible with that uh, listen that could know. be the next that could be the next generation of oled screens you know <laughs> super yeah, organic I mean, like, yeah, organic and, and, and green and everything like that. So I don't know. Um, we'll see. We'll see. So before we let you go, the spinner car, that is yeah. a, a prime example of technology from the original Blade Runner that you needed to apply to the next generation film. Mm-hmm. How long did it take you to build that cockpit? Because with all those little displays, they all had to do something. They all had to reflect something related to the spinner car. We had to feel like it was real. Yeah, um, we we work with this um, the, this very very good friend of ours called uh, Paul Inglis. He was the supervising art director on the film, and um, Dennis Gessner, uh, who was the production designer on the film, uh, briefed him on how the spinners and how these sort of like uh, screens should look like. So we started to work with Paul. Paul had an idea about yes, we want to see three displays or four displays in the spinner. They all sort of like 
sort of like trickle-down technology. It's definitely not really advanced. It's quite beaten up. It's like a, um, a, a very used old beaten up police car with very old used police technology which is very very far off from the the high-tech super design world of of wallace um so we got that sort of like initial brief and then we started to play with different technologies how the pilot fish could see the world how uh, what sort of data k needs when when uh, he works obviously he needed some sort of communication system is it like video communication or is it just just sort of like speech based does he need any text all sorts of stuff that we got from Paul um, we started to design stuff and then, then we fed, fed it back to him and then there was a bit of back and forth and that's where, that's where we uh, got to the point which ended up being in the film. Did you ever get to sit in the car? No, unfortunately not. Uh, but, you know, they um, they use all these screens on set. So uh, what was beautiful about Blade Runner is, um, uh, you probably heard that, that they did not really want to use green screens. They did not really want to use CGI as much as they could have done. They tried to do everything for real. So the screens that you see in the film, uh, um, 95% of that was on the set, was, was played back, was... Uh, sort of like synchronized to the actor's lines and and was triggered live when the actors triggered certain things so they feel they, they really felt that this is an immersive world and i think you know that's probably one of the things that um the actors bring up in interviews that they 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 were just just you know sort of like they just had to feel this world and, and it helped them tremendously to to get into character so we, we obviously played a very small part in this in this whole huge monsters film um but it's it's it, it was a very important part in our books because you know if you, if you think about it color you don't do not really see color in, in, in especially in the beginning, you know, the, the bleak grays and, 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 and all sorts of stuff like that. And and those bluish, greenish, greenish uh, computer screens were, were a source of um, any, anything that was slightly colorful. So, yeah, um, back to your original question. I think... Um, I think it was really important that was on set and, and it was used live and, and they could see what's happening there. And yes, I missed it. I could not sit in, in the spinner, unfortunately. Ah. <laughs> I would do it. I sat in a Batmobile, though. Oh, you know, I went to a car show with my dad. I think I was six years old. This was the original Batmobile from the TV series. And there were two kids that were picked out of the crowd for a chance to actually sit inside the Batmobile. And I wasn't picked and I cried. Oh, oh I cried. Speaking of crying, uh, here's a question for you that you might have some inside track on. Did the replicant K actually die in the end as the camera pulls back as he's lying in the snow? Uh, you know, uh, um, I know as much as you do. Um, I saw the film. Ah. I saw the film. Um, I, I think he died. That's that's my take on it. But you know, you, you never know. We 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 managed to read the script once when we were on set. Um, we had one hour to to skim through the text, and that's that's all I know about it. And then then I watched the film, and my impression was that he died. But you never know. I mean, like maybe. With a, with a sort of like a, a, a bit of service, he could be 
working again. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Bit of service. <laughs> yeah, maybe, you know. Thanks so much for your time and insight. And one last question, of course. You're in a desert, walking along the sand, when all of a sudden you look down and you see a tortoise. It's crawling towards you. You reach down, you flip the tortoise over on its back. The tortoise lays on its back, its belly baking in the hot sun, beating its legs, trying to turn itself over, but it can't. Not without your help, but you're not helping. Why is that? I would, I would definitely help. All right, clearly you are not a replicant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, the, the board contest is, is not really um, working anymore. The baseline test is much better, I have to say. Peter, thanks so much for your time. Thank you very much, guys. Ever wanted to be a big shot co-producer? It's just like Hollywood. Visit geeksandbeats.com to learn how you can pad your resume with an exciting show credit. We'll even send you the album cover of your episode, suitable for framing in your parents' basement. You know, one of the things that would have been kind of cool is to have a guy like this get involved in... uh, the production of music videos, because everybody is shooting on such more rudimentary equipment than we used back in the day. And, you know, you would have budgets of a hundred thousand, you know, of a million, two million, five million dollars to do a music video. I wonder what a guy like he would do with the music video today if he had a budget to work with. You know, I, I'm, not, I'm not being facetious. Uh, do they even bother with music videos anymore? Yeah, you do, because unless you are on YouTube, for a lot of people, you don't exist. So the videos can be something, something as simple as a lyric video, which is just a static background or, or a barely moving background with the, the lyrics of the song going by. But there are other people that do the same, you know, the storyline videos, the surreal music videos. Oh, yeah, I get uh, releases of them, uh, of new vis- videos every single week. Um and some of these, you know, we can look at, you know, Psy, for example, with uh, Gang of Style. I mean, that had three billion views. Um, Luis Fonzi and um, Despacito had a couple of different videos, four billion views. So, yeah, there's a lot of money that can be made with these things. You just don't see them on a video channel. Over at Statista.com, they're looking at the share of the U.S. population have used YouTube to watch music videos or listen to music uh, as of uh, February 2017, so basically uh, about a year ago at this time. When you ask those aged 25 to 54 if they watched a music video in the last week, uh, only half would say yes. Three quarters of those 12 to 24 would say absolutely yeah, and they do it on YouTube, uh, on their devices. And now YouTube is in the process of aggregating all their music services into one division. And that means YouTube, YouTube Red, YouTube Music, uh, Google Play Music, all in one office for the first time. So we'll see exactly where this leads going into 2018 and beyond. In a related note, who's the wizard who came up with YouTube Red? You don't want to be typing that into the Google search. No, you do not. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, that's one. Somebody tricked me into doing that. And I ended up with, oh, you mean, well, why don't they just call it RedTube? Oh, <laughs> oh, I see why. Oh, OK. Um, excuse me for a moment. London, Bangkok, New York. Cincinnati from the worldwide headquarters of Geeks and Beats magazine. This is a GNB News Update. 
Um, before we go any deeper into the financial wherewithal of the of the podcast, uh, do we own any? Do we own any Bitcoin? No, no, we do not own any Bitcoin. And I was one of those guys who was like, ah, Bitcoin. What's that going to be? I don't want to spend one thousand dollars on Bitcoin. What are we up to now? Eighteen grand, something like that. I had an opportunity maybe a year, year and a half ago, to go to. It was an introductory class, and I think it was Ethereum. I can't be bothered. Stupid crypto. It's never going to be anything. Everybody who went to this seminar got six. (laughs) Six full Ethereum coins, which are worth somewhere in the neighborhood of $200,000 now. Wow. Uh, By the way. I couldn't be bothered. Uh, we probably should have bought some Bitcoin um, because uh, Wifey did the uh, breakdown of the Las Vegas trip expenses. Oh, uh, he just held up a huge spreadsheet with a lot of numbers <laughs> on it. <laughs> Grand total, $4,390.77. <laughs> Granted, that, now that's two of you. That, well, that's two of you. No, no. She broke it down on a per-person basis. Granted, yes, uh, we shared uh, a, a hotel room and we shared a cab and we and all that kind of stuff. Um, but uh, it's forty three ninety point seventy seven. Uh, granted, that does include um, the sexy, sexy uh, show that we took <laughs> in the, <laughs> the, the Cirque du Soleil. <laughs> uh, so if you want to subtract eighty nine dollars and thirty four cents from that figure uh, for us to go to the big uh, consumer electronics show la- next year, we're going to have to uh, drum up a little more business than we already have. Oh, my God. Yeah. See, now, now now that you wave that in front of me, I'm glad I didn't go because that would have been disastrous on the budget at this end. By the way, Ethereum, uh, $1,400 a coin, so no, it wasn't 200 Oh, what a crash. Yeah, I know. Yeah, tell me about it. <laughs> uh, we want to thank, of course, you as the listener who's been supporting the big show as a member of the World's Worst Intern Program. You join the World's Worst Intern Program by going to Geeks and Beats and clicking the Support the Show link. You uh, give us a dollar per episode. Don't do any actual work as an intern on the show. And we just uh, say thank you very much for that. But we also want to thank uh, Fabian Skioskiza. Uh, who was our Big Shot uh, co-producer last week, and whose name I completely butchered. You did well just that... Did you just get it right? No, I totally got it wrong again. Um, Because he messaged me saying, you just got back from holiday in the wonderful land of Cuba... To only hear my last name butchered of the New Year episode, though it is quite common unless you speak a da Italiana, as he wrote it. Uh, so he says, so phonetically, it's actually pronounced Shosha. <laughs> so Skioskia and Shosha couldn't be further from reality. Okay, well. Uh, he used to be a roadie back in the day for a band called Tebelo Zero. Does that name ring a bell at all? Spell it up for me. He, uh, T-E-B-B-E-L. O W Z E R O O W Z E R O Dude, ten below zero. Yeah, it's a typo thing, clearly. Ten below zero. What did you just call it? Uh, ten below zero. It, well, this was his typo. It was T E B B E L O W Z E R O. So oh, I think okay, Fabian no, and I are even here. <laughs> No, 10 below zero. <laughs> yeah, okay. So that's a little bit different. Um, a, he says he drank with many bands such as Curve, James, and the Carpets. Ooh, that's very good. He realized okay. it wasn't a good fiscal uh, plan, though, so he got married, had a kid, got married again, worked on another kid, and builds houses. 
Oh, yeah. Okay. I'm just looking this up. They, sounds like they were part of the early Britpop era. So he is a co-producer on the big show by donating 25 bucks an episode. And the thing about Patreon is you can set a lifetime limit. Uh, Fabian has not, so we are going to milk him dry. Uh, Tim Below Zero first formed in the late 90s as a five-piece band. First started gigging in 2000. We played a wide range of music, including classic rock for the pubs and a lighter rock and roll set for clubs and parties. We continue to gig. Oh, very nice. I'll have to look them up. Eastbourne, East Sussex. He, by the way, and you as a car guy will appreciate this, uh, says that uh, he can be seen driving his Pontiac Firebird 77 TA. I really wanted a 77 TA. That was one with the big V8, 454 cubic inch engine. At the time, it had 300-ish horsepower, which was all the horsepower in the world. I ended up with my own Firebird, a 1979 Firebird. However, I couldn't afford the big power plant. So mine had a V6 that had a total displacement of 237 cubic inches and I think a total horsepower of 160. So while it looked like a Thunderbird on the inside, if you opened up the hood and looked for this massive engine on the inside, there was this tiny little engine in the middle of the engine compartment and then empty space around it. Oh, I thought you were going to say it was more like the Flintstones where you had a dinosaur in there doing all the pedaling. Pretty close. Pretty close. Uh, it looked cool on the outside, but please, every time somebody pulled up next to me in a Mustang or something next uh, at a stoplight and wanted to, wanted to punch it, uh, I just kind of waved them off because uh, a 237 V6 in a car that heavy? No. Well, you know where the 77 TA got its fame? Well, that's Smokey and the Bandit. Smokey and the Bandit, baby. Oh, Yeah. So he says, keep up the amazing work. Can't wait for the next show. So, Fabian, thank you very much for your support. And uh, we do appreciate everybody's support. So uh, it's very helpful, particularly with this $4,390.77 bill, minus $1,000, because we want to thank again Victor Biggio uh, for actually What does Victor do for... What does he do for a living that he can afford to throw us that kind of money? I recall he had told me at one point that uh, he was essentially in the travel industry. Huh. So he flies all around the world checking out resorts and is our inaugural GNB Mug Tour hashtag creator over on the Twitter account. So if you go to Geeks and Beats, uh, click on the swag store and buy one of our miracle travel mugs of traveling, be sure to take a picture of it wherever you are and tag us on the Intertron on the Twitter machine. Hashtag GN is in Norman, B Mug Tour, and then 2018 for this year. He's been doing it since 2015. So he's flying all around the world. Which, by the way, we haven't gotten a single new intern since the start of the oh, year. Really? Well, maybe they're still... You know, the college strike really screwed things up here in Ontario, mm. so maybe that's a problem. But we have interns, we have producers, we have... What, what are the levels of contributions we have? I don't even know. I should know this. You could either be a $1 plus, because it could be more than a buck, uh, intern, or you can be a $25 okay. co-producer, and we'll put your name on the album art so that you can print it off, frame it, and hang it in your parents' basement. Okay. I don't like the word sponsor. I, we have to find something a little bit better. All right. You work on it. I will. Catch all new episodes of Geeks and Beats Wednesdays on iTunes. And watch for Geeks and Beats magazine on a newsstand near you. To be part of next week's show, call area code 323-319-NERD. Follow the stories on Twitter or Facebook. And get your dose of Geeks and Beats anytime at geeksandbeats.com.
Headlines are up. Well, I, I have a note from you to Peter, but... And then there's a separate one in a different area. Oh, in a different way. Hang on, let me just close this one then. Here, do you want me to just text it to you? Uh, no, hang on. I'll go here. There you go. Uh, close that window. Oh, there we go. Okay, here we are. All right. Oh, fine. You give me the pronunciation. Essenzi. 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 Okay. Yep. Okay. Here we go. The Geeks and Beats podcast would like to thank the National Science Foundation.